But there's also the expression that the perfect is the enemy of the good or great is the enemy of the good, where sometimes people will uh, never finish something because of their perfectionism. Uh, like I've had friends who have a pet project like, oh, I'm making an album for myself on the side and they they spend 10 or 20 or 30 years and they never finish it. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Very good. Welcome to another Brushes and Keys. Shall I say I'm Austin Wintry? Yes, thank you so much. And I'm Angela Bermudez. The funny thing is that it doesn't feel natural to me to say that, despite the fact that I do that on every YouTube video I make. Uh, I always start by saying, hi, I'm Austin Wintry, because it's somebody's first time seeing my channel. But yet when it comes to this, it feels like, ah, I mean, they come they know who we are. And it's funny how my brain is in two different places at once. I fully yeah. admit to being. Should I should I just turn off the camera to hide your identity? Yeah. So you don't know who you're talking to and you can't present yourself as if it was some someone new. Uh, yeah, I think okay. that I am. I am that I am that susceptible <laughs> to that kind of trick. Yeah, it's, it's like the uh, family guy joke where they find the prostitute in the hotel room and they go don't move their visions based on movement oh and they hold so she goes where'd they go <laughs> uh, i uh, think i remember uh, it's so stupid um, but i am so the target for a joke like that yeah for sure um, in any case today we're gonna talk about perfectionism perfectionists yes and everything along those lines do you consider yourself, Austin? Do you, you you think you're a perfectionist? Um, it's interesting. I don't know because I think the nature of the work that I do demands a certain amount of pragmatism, which is kind of like the opposite of perfectionism. Perfectionism is I don't care what the reality says. I don't care if I don't have enough time, I don't care if there's not enough budget or blah, 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 any, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing, you know, if, if, uh, if the reality intervenes and says, it's not going to ever be whatever your mental thing is that says that's what perfect equals. It'll never achieve that. Mm -hmm. Um, the perfectionist will just not care and will sort of drive themselves insane pursuing that. And obviously, occasionally, really amazing art will result because they're being so uncompromising. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when you work in video games or film, um, that's not possible because, at least as a composer, but this is true for every creative person in, the, in these industries, there are other forces at work that require, at some point, you have to be pragmatic. Like, like if I, if I, if there's just not enough money to do what I think theoretically would be perfect i have to think of something else now i actually believe that's better you you right. the constraint leads you somewhere so it's like i like to think of myself as a perfectionist because i i i mean you know how late i come home and like i it's because i'm always saying like oh it can be a little better it can be a little better it can be a little better and i'm always pushing but i also at some point will go okay like it i I, I don't have any more time. If right. I, I, I can't be, I can't fail as a professional. Do you honestly think that whenever you cross that line, 
you can say to yourself, I better stop. Oh, yeah, Do I have you... to all the time or I'll never yeah. hit any deadlines. Like, <laughs> I, I, no, well, I, guess true. That, like, I, guess true. I have to self-regulate. But also, talking about um, budget, you know, if there's no enough money to to make whatever project you have in your mind, uh, you're going to take from your pocket and cover those expenses. <laughs> so that's why I'm asking you these questions, because yeah, I don't think I, I think, you know, where the line is, but you cross it anyway. <laughs> well, I think what that just means is that the line is like further. There's like an official line and an unofficial line uh, where the official line I'll cross you know, like, okay, well, we can't do anything other than this because the budget is restricted. But you're right. On certain projects, I've definitely just gone over budget and just paid for it myself because I thought, I, I, I don't like, yes, they didn't have the budget for this, but it needs it. It needs, what do I want? Do I want that extra money in my account or do I want something right. I'm proud of at the end of the day? Yeah. You know, what do yeah, I... Yeah, that, that's the perfectionist talking because... Not every composer, not every artist do that. They just deliver what they asked to do. But but there is still a line. Like, that's the thing. That's why I said there's kind of like an unofficial line that's sort of the secret line where it's not like I'll bankrupt myself. Like, it's one of those where if it turns yeah, out, sure. you know, yes, I could spend until I'm homeless. I right. could, theoretically. There's nothing stopping that from happening, but I will stop myself. Have you, have with, you been close to... Uh, my first film with Paul Solid Grace, I drained 100% of my savings into that score. Jesus. Uh, and so I, I, I had no more safety net or, or oh, kind wow. of like after that point, I was living on whatever I could make in real time for a little while before I was able to kind of start saving again. But it took me several years to even get to a point where I started saving again. I had an empty savings account, wow. quite literally zero. Um, so yeah, that was one of those where those producers were sort of douchebags because I think <laughs> they realized my, I, this actually is very rare. Everyone has this perception that Hollywood is full of sharks and they're always trying to screw you. And in my experience, I've had almost no experiences like that. I've had most producers and directors, everyone's trying to make something good yeah. and they and everybody has comp competing needs and demands, which is again, where the perfectionism is like. You know, a director who is an ultra perfectionist will will blow out the whole budget before the other crew has even been hired because they're going to just be obsessing over their angle. And a, a good producer will say to them, you can't have all those things because we also need some for music. We also need some for this or that or that. And like they're trying to balance all these competing needs that that's good. That So if someone tells you we don't have the money, they probably don't have the money. But that said, this one film. I'm pretty sure they did have the money. Oh. Um, and it wasn't like a huge amount. It was a low budget movie, but I'm pretty sure they had more because they quoted me a number. And then like a week later, 75% of that money was mysteriously gone. Oh, and wow. I think, I think they came to the conclusion. Austin is such close friends with the director. He'll uh -huh. do this no matter what. Cause wow. they wanted Paul to be happy cause he wanted mm -hmm. me. So they wanted to make right. sure he got what he wanted. But, um, obviously they have to negotiate with me. And so they were like, well, you know, I don't think he's, I don't think he will run away. So my, the budget that I had been sort of told disappeared, three quarters of it just was gone one day to the next. So I signed Jesus. a contract 
I remember my agent, I didn't have an agent, but my lawyer um, looked at the deal and it was a horrible deal because not only was it low budget, but, you know, it was like all the worst versions of composer kind of contracts. And I remember oh he gosh. goes, this is this is among the worst deals I've ever seen. And I cannot, <laughs> I don't want you to sign this. Wow. And I said to him, I'm not turning down Paul. Uh, oh, and wow. so I took it and I basically just spent the same amount of money as if they had promised me. Oh, wow. Like I, I just basically spent that amount. <laughs> and yeah. that turns out yeah. that was basically all I had. <laughs> wow. And uh, the things you do for love. <laughs> And art, like I, it was, it was, I believed Paul, Paul kept saying the only rule is there are no rules. And yeah. he was so encouraging of an unconventional score. And we found an approach that was interesting and it fit the movie and it was, it didn't was sound like other Was he even aware of what was going on behind, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, he knows it's a running joke. Every he and I've worked together a lot of times and every time we've worked together, he's managed to find more money for me than on the last one. And I've mm -hmm. found ways to spend more money than the last one. <laughs> oh so to this day, I still don't think I've ever particularly made much money from working with him. But I keep spending more and more because the projects are bigger. The projects are more interesting. And I don't regret oh. a single. I mean, every time I work with him, I change as an artist. I mean, he's just right. a really special director. He pushes yeah. me. I always call him like a personal trainer who is he yeah, pushes sure. you so hard and you're like in pain while it's happening. But then <laughs> later you're stronger and you go, oh, wow, that was worth the the sweat. You know, that was worth the, right. the pain. Um, he, he's just really special. So, yeah, I I uh, I mean, you got to see a, t a taste of that with Tread. Um, right. You know, yeah. it, it's like here's it's seemingly a simple movie, but it, it's like worked really hard on every yeah. little moment. Yeah. That's um, so, yeah. Anyway, also funny random trivia, which I think also explains where the budgets keep going on his projects. I think I've hired Tina on every single thing I've ever done of his. Mm. Grace was well before Journey. Uh, and uh, and uh, she's a featured musician on that. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, so yes, I, I do. The summary is I do consider myself a perfectionist up until the point where I then go, Anything enough more, and now enough. I'm I'm being unprofessional past this point, yeah. And I'm willing to draw the line, right? Um, but I also work in a field that has pretty hard deadlines. Uh, yeah. Like you can't just call and go. Can I have another week? Is that going to be a problem for anybody? Like you don't even want to make that call. Never mind. Right. Ask for it. You, on the other hand, obviously you do some types of commissions that have deadlines, but other types don't. So you're in a far more vulnerable position to really be a perfectionist because you don't have those forces. So the same question then back to you. I, I always consider myself a perfectionist, like in every sense, everything I do, like even making the bed, I try to keep yeah, as You don't like less... how I fold the socks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's no joke. It's so, yes. it's true. You are very, yeah, I have to undo Austin's socks to make the proper balls so they can fit, you know, in order. And the, they are. The you drawer. somehow make them into little spheres, and when I do it, they look like beans. They, they, they. Like are, peanuts. Yeah, like they look like a peanut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't really know how you do it, but and anyway, that's a perfect. Show you. <laughs> I am not too old to yeah. learn new tricks. Oh no. Um, but no, it's true. You, you 
uh, you do apply that perfectionism to. I remember the other day we were having breakfast, I think, and our table is glass, and it it's mounted. It's like sitting on this frame, and there's like these little rubber uh, feet that hold the glass in place, and one of them had moved yeah. out of center, and I was watching you like struggle to basically <laughs> reposition this little rubber stopper on below the yeah, glass. Yeah, the struggle was because the glass was very heavy and it took a little bit of, you know, strength to move it. The fact that you like can't eat in peace. Honestly, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I should put that into the perfectionist side, but that's more like a, like a, what is it? Like a... Like OCD. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's uncomfortable to watch, so you need to fix whatever is making you, you know, tick your eye. I think the first time I witnessed your tendency to perfectionism was after Dialogos. You pretty much always immediately say horrible things about your own work. Uh, you look at the painting and you're like, ah. Uh, because the yep. whole point of Dialogos, for those who don't know what Dialogos is, we do a improvised duet where I play piano and Anhila paints and neither of us is the leader guiding the other. We're kind of mutually pushing and pulling where she'll paint based on what she hears, but I play based on what I see and it kind of spins around in a circle for 30-ish minutes until a painting is done and there's been 30 minutes concert the whole time and so because it's completely improvised with no preset plan the paintings are always a total wild card there's absolutely no way to know at least from my angle there's no way to even begin to guess where yeah. the painting is going to end up uh even halfway through the painting could end up somewhere wildly different by the end uh you you've you've changed direction mid-flight almost every time we've done it like in yeah. super major ways so this is an interesting exercise because it requires abandoning perfectionism because it's like, yeah, you're going to just paint until the time runs out mm -hmm. and then the painting's done. Although I do remember when we did the show in Mexico, you went back to the hotel room. Oh, you, yeah. I had you to worked it. on the paint. But that was a special because uh, I wanted to give it to my friend Adri uh, and I, I was, you know, aware of uh, how ugly it <laughs> looked at the end and and you know I, wa I wanted to just fix a little detail here and there and then i don't know i ended up painting for like two hours more yeah i remember you were sp your paints were spread out all over the the we were in the yeah. hotel room and you like you made like a desk out of the bed yeah and, i know um, <laughs> but yeah that that's what i mean where theoretically there's supposed to be kind of a freedom like a catharsis in dialogos going mm -hmm. i i I can't be a perfectionist because that sort of breaks the formula yeah. of what this is. Do you enjoy but that's that though? Fun. Yes, that's fun. Uh, and it's one of the topics that I was going to bring up, which is the comfort zone. Like uh. if you're content with whatever you do, you, you just don't meet the perfectionist side of yourself, right? Nobody, nobody that thinks that way is a perfectionist. And I know that people think, yes, being perfectionist sucks. But it also brings the best of you. You just have to take the good of it, right? In, instead of like looking at it and as a sickness. Because it can be a sickness. 
I think so. I think I, that's where I think in my case, I'm grateful that I have producers and people who kind of help me draw the line by just making things do by a certain date. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, otherwise, it, you, you if you're if you're an artist that doesn't have that kind of situation, I do think you need some way you need to kind of invent a producer, as it were, to go after this date or after 10 o'clock or after whatever. You must shut it down uh, yep. because you will drive yourself insane. Like, like you said, it, it's. I never really thought about the idea of a comfort zone being antithetical to a perfectionism because in my mind they're kind of like apples and oranges. But you're absolutely right. I think that there is a real, yeah, uh, kryptonite sort of yeah. uh, relationship there. You yeah, know, yeah, I know. Contentment you... is the enemy of progress. But there's also the expression that the perfect is the enemy of the good or great is the enemy of the good, where sometimes people will uh, never finish something because of their perfectionism. Uh, like I've had friends who have a pet project like, oh, I'm making an album for myself on the side. And they they spend 10 or 20 or 30 years and they never Are finish it. Are you thinking about Neil? With his well, machine. I, I mean, Neil is <laughs> probably a good example. Neil Akery yeah. spent many, many years. In his case, he's also just very busy. What is uh, the name um, of the album again? Uh, Velvet Machine. Velvet Machine, yes. Yeah, and, I remember. Um, and um, yeah, it was like a personal project that he spent. Yeah. Like literally it was like 20 years or something. But I don't think yeah. that was perfectionism as much as it was that he's just had a very successful, busy career that has yeah, yeah. been distracting and there's just been limited time to really focus on it, which is a very good problem to have. For sure. And, for and sure. kudos that he then, despite the fact that he's busier than ever, uh, you know, put the put the effort in to still finish it regardless. So I, I, I thought right. that was a really cool thing. Um, but but no, yeah, this idea that you you're so committed to this perfection that you never finish it. But also I've seen it plenty of times on films I've worked on and things where the perfectionism actually drives people to destroy it. They, they, they're like, I changed, like imagine a painting where you're like, it's a little dark. I'm just going to add a little bit of blue here and a little white here and a little of this. And then you start reacting to that little change and you go, well, now this is a little, this needs a little thing. Is it, well, now that I've done this, I guess. I right. really need it. And before you know it, the painting is actually ruined and you have to throw it. Exactly. Away oh my God. So many times. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's where the perfectionism is actively sabotaged it. And the people yeah. that, that go, you know what? I, I Okay, here's a great shout out. Adam DeGrandis, who was the artist on Tooth and Tail. I just yesterday, by total, like this is unrelated to planning this, but yesterday I listened to um, a GDC talk he gave a couple years ago about the art direction on Tooth and Tail that I never knew he gave or I had forgotten he gave this talk. And... He talks about how there's this expression of going, that's good enough. He goes, we tend to think of that's a negative mm -hmm. context to going good enough. It feels like you're being lazy and you're kind of abandoning yeah. it early. Right. But he was like, I think there's something. He goes, what if I come up to someone and I say, you're good enough. Like, right. He goes, you are not falling short of this imaginary uh, rule. It's actually intended as this beautiful affirmation that you you are you are everything that's needed you, yeah. you know and so he goes he goes when i'm working on a project as an artist or when i've hired an artist to work 
with me. He goes, to me, it's supposed to be great praise and supposed to be very empowering to say, this is good enough because it means it's, it's, we can finish this. We actually can release it. We can, mm -hmm. people will be able to play I it. I will feel so self-conscious if I read that feedback, honestly. I had the same reaction. I was like, boy, I don't like, I remember my teacher, Denise Hughes, when I was in, uh, at NYU, she always used to say good enough is never good enough. If you, if you mm -hmm. hear yourself going, it's good enough, that means you're not done. Uh, yeah. and so I have like yeah. the opposite kind of brainwashing there in indoctrination, I can see both sides, but I found there's something, I found there was something kind of beautiful in what he was trying to say, what he was, the message he was communicating that, that saying you've hit the mark and now give yourself permission to go, I, I don't want to risk destroying it. I don't right. want to risk like you can move on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's missing. Like, cause uh, this comes up in classical music world where um, in the, because in the ideal path of a composer in the classical music world, like in the orchestral world is you write a piece, orchestras start playing it. And then if you're lucky, they start, you know, you get a lot of phone calls from orchestras saying, Hey, we'd like to program your piece next season. La 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 la. And because they're constantly coming to you, there's some composers will, Every time they send it, it's actually a slightly different version because they're 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 tweaking it constantly, mm -hmm. and they're, every time a, a new orchestra plays the piece, there's an opportunity to improve it and modify it. And I've been guilty of this a little bit. I remember. I was the, gonna say, yeah, you you always do that, I guess. Well, I, I, actually, not not so much. I I like for example, I I committed myself at some point years ago to going. You know what? I want each piece to be a time capsule to wherever I was when I wrote that piece. And if I'm a better composer today, rather than trying to update the piece to reflect what I know today, I'll just put that energy into the next piece, into right. being next music being good. But the but the one exception where I was like, it's all well and good to say that if you write a piece, they play it, and then it's never played again, which is the fate of most modern classical pieces. You know, an orchestra does it, and then you know it's that's that. It's it's done. But I've been lucky, been unusually lucky that apotheosis in particular has been played a bazillion times um, and they and they keep getting asked um, uh, to, to I, I keep getting emails from people interested in performing it which means I, I have had opportunities to go well mm -hmm. yeah, I could tweak this I could tweak that and, and I remember I did at first uh, the very first performance of it um, I in Spain I was not totally happy with my orchestration um, but it was hard to say because the orchestra was a little bit overstretched with their rehearsal so I couldn't tell if the sheet music was the problem and it was my fault or if they were just a little underprepared they did a good job and it was an amazing experience but the performance wasn't the best part of it it was just they they, they did as well as they could under the difficult situation that they were in I had another chance a few months later in Germany in Cologne at, at an event called Soundtrack Cologne where this great orchestra the WDR uh, played Apotheosis and that was one where the orchestra was A plus and uh, the conductor was very good, but he didn't really know the piece. And there were a few things that I hated the performance. I heard mm. it and I was like, oh my God, this sounds terrible. And wow, I realized- how, how can you, what was exactly, it was but, like the energy was different? It was the balance. So the, when you think of apotheosis, there's like this, the main thing that you're supposed to pay attention to, it, there's three layers. The thing that you hear 
most obviously are the strings going da 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 these bouncing triplet figures. The next layer down is actually the melody. It's just so slow that you always hear it after you hear those fast strings, which is just this like da na 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 na. Like it's just it's the theme unfolding so slowly that it almost just feels like notes that are just kind of holding mm -hmm. and cha changing periodically. Then there's another layer below that, which is these chords and kind of like colors in the background to just add some texture. Now, in the original, I did that with synthesizers and electronics because the strings were the main sound. But when it came to do it live, I didn't have those electronics on stage. So I said, I'm going to put that in the brass. So I have the French horns in the background in particular and the trombones just holding these chords, just boom. It's supposed to be the third layer down, which means it's the it's the last thing you're supposed to notice. Now, rarely are brass everything. Usually brass are they're so loud. They're up front. If they're there, you're supposed to hear them. That's like the cliche use of brass. Well, obviously, I don't like cliches. And, and also brass are not really part of journey. So I was trying to hide them while using them since it's a traditional orchestra. So this conductor, he basically put the brass front and center and the, oh, everything my. else behind. So it was yeah. like, and it was like, holy shit, that's not apotheosis. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. it, 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 I mean, the audience seemed to enjoy I it, but see, I was, I was I in see. agony. And I realized I can fix this in the sheet music so that even a conductor that doesn't know anything about this music, it, it's like bulletproof and they, it doesn't rely on them having a familiarity with how the music is supposed to sound. Because I can't control that. A lot of times uh -huh. I get an email saying, hey, our conductor is going to play your piece. Can we have the sheet music? And that's it. Isn't that's it, all I isn't ever Isn't it hear. that like super basic? Like is there like a way you would to think, leave but not instructions? That's weird. Well, it's subjective. It, it, again, there's – there's, we'll watch sometime one of the <laughs> – the New York – I think it was in the New York Times referred to this as one of the greatest hours – one hour of television ever made, which was Leonard Bernstein explaining the art of conducting with the New York Philharmonic on live television on a TV show called Omnibus in the late 50s or the early 60s, where he took the first page, which is like 10 seconds of music, of Brahms' first symphony, and he spent one hour saying, here's what the sheet music says, and if we just mindlessly play that, here's how it sounds, which if anybody has heard this piece, knows that this is totally wrong. So as a conductor, what are the steps I take to shape it into what we think Brahms actually meant versus what's literally represented on the mm -hmm. page? He spends one hour explaining what a conductor wow. does. And he did it on live TV with a full orchestra That's where he's conducting them and the cameras are moving and it's all memorized script with choreography. And uh -huh. It's you know, unbelievable. Now that you say, now that you explain that that way, I kind of like, in my head, now the conductor has become the mixer, the live mixer. Totally. Yeah, they're, they're a live mixer, and they're also kind of like the equivalent of a football coach talking to the orchestra, uh, mm. where they, they have to figure out what's the right message to make them all kind of move together and behave like a, like a you know, like a, like a Navy SEALs, you know, where right. they're really like, they can almost hear each other's thoughts. Yeah, you know, yeah. the, it's sort of a it's sort of a combo of those two roles, I think. Mm -hmm. That's weird, a, approval though, that canvas. they had to perform a piece that they didn't even know. Um, That's actually don't you just standard. go, you know, there's the Internet. You can listen to it. 
in defense of orchestras, every composer has the the ego of wishing that every member of the orchestra is going to go Google them and everything about them and listen to the music. And, and some musicians will take it upon themselves to do that. But in general, I don't think that's necessarily their job. It's your job as a composer to represent yourself as clearly as humanly possible on the page. And if you're confusing, I don't think it's their fault for then being I confused. I uh, and so it's part of what makes it a difficult job. You know, it's part of. Right. For sure. This is where the perfectionism really, yeah. again, like some, like Stravinsky famously, Stravinsky messed with the Rite of Spring for like decades. He kept tweaking it. There's, in fact, there's publications that are like, here's the 1913 version, here's the 1931 <laughs> version, or whatever, and wow. and that's very much a real thing. Um, yeah. Well, and, I guess I guess that depends on the conductor. If they're perfectionist, they're gonna go look you up and do what actually, yeah. Some and there definitely are some. You know, I think if it's a classical conductor who is being asked to do a video game concert, usually they show up and half the time, I hate to sound disparaging of my conductor brethren, but I've seen it before where there's the conductor is sight reading from the podium. They've put there, they just, they're like, I'm just assuming that this is all going to be a bunch of really simple kind of like the orchestra version of pop music. Like I just go up there and it kind of takes care of itself. And of course they often get caught with their pants down as it were, because they realize this is actually crazy, complicated, difficult music. Yeah. What are we doing? Um, you know, it used to happen with John Williams music, you know, these conductors who would think, Oh, we'll do like a little bit of pop movie night or whatever. And then they go to play star Wars or something. And they realize this is wildly difficult for the orchestra. That's good. Yeah. That's uh, good. Yeah. But it also means that they're underprepared. I think, I don't think that's is that, happening. Is that a modern way of thinking or is that like, you know, like a decade ago or you the know. modern way of thinking is having a far greater appreciation. Video game music is still treated as a second class citizen in the world of classical music, but it's changing rapidly because those concerts yeah. tend to sell fast. So orchestras are paying more attention to it, but film music 20 years ago was in that position and now is no longer. That's good. So yeah, we're, the whole, <laughs> yeah, thank God. Well, it's the free market at work because the audience, the audience goes with what they want to see and nine, 19 Mozart concerts in a row versus, Hey, we can go hear Jurassic Park and ET or a night of video game music. I mean, look at what's happening in London in like two weeks, the first ever uh, BBC proms show of all video game music. That's the first time in the history of the proms, which is a really old concert series. And it's been like the biggest deal in classical music, at least in terms of British classical music for ever. And they literally this time are doing video game music for the first time. And um, amazing. And um, so that's um, that's like symbol or emblematic that it's, Times are changing for sure. Um, and uh, and the funny thing is I love the old ways. Like I love classical music and I love going to those kinds of concerts. And But I also, I've always been so sad by the idea that classical music is like this museum. You go there to hear old things. Yeah. Because in the world of art, you've got, you know, you've got your, your art gallery. You've got like muse museums or galleries that would focus on exhibitions of the great masters of the past and then you'll have whole museums dedicated to only modern art mm -hmm. um, or contemporary works it's not really a good music equivalent to that you know it it, it 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 there's no like there are some orchestras that are founded like the london contemporary orchestra for example 
um, they are dedicated to modern music uh, as their soul. They won't well, play Beethoven. I'm not sure if that applies. Uh, it's just a place for each thing. Meaning that if you want to go listen to all pieces, you yes, you go to the theater and then you just go find them. But if you want to know what's going on in the modern world, you go to like a stadium and go to a concert. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. The, but you're kind of... I'm talking purely in the world of classical music, um, like that term. Oh, oh, that, oh, oh, oh. Like, yeah. Like if classical, you brought not, in, not exactly old, but classical in terms of like the aesthetic. Like, like yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like if you think of uh, that term, I only use that term because it's what most people, if I just say, if I say orchestral concert music, that right. term might not be familiar to folks. So I just say I, classical I, music or modern classical. To me, I, that is clearer than saying classical, classical. I just think like old stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be pedantic, classical refers to literally like the 18th century specifically. Like even Beethoven uh, is post-classical. Uh -huh. Beethoven would that's be romantic. That's not pedantic. That's what I learned. Like that's. What, <laughs> but it always it it just you sound pretentious. You sound like Whoa. you're. Whoa, <laughs> like, like I don't mean you. I mean I mean I mean like anybody who 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 only uses the term classical to refer to that time period of the classical okay. era. Which uh -huh. is like, which which it also is very limiting because it means, you know, basically Western Europe from the very tail end of the you know 1600s to the early 1800s, essentially, like mm -hmm. that's the classical era, um, and uh, more or less the 18th century. Uh, mm -hmm. It just sounds. You just sound like you're being I didn't know a snob that. if you're like, oh well, I didn't mean like if I if I. <laughs> Like if somebody refers my to my monocle. Yeah, well, exactly. If somebody, if somebody, if somebody refers to Beethoven as classical music, and you correct them and go, uh, no, that's actually from the Romantic period. You're a <laughs> Shut up. Yeah, of course I don't know any of that. I just, I'm just actually being ignorant by saying classical. It's old stuff. But that's what most people mean. That's why I use <laughs> yeah. it that way. That's why we typically will say classical and then modern classical, which sounds like a of paradox. Course. Yeah. Uh, but the the true term that is more used by industry people would be concert music. It just means the difference between because you have like film music and video game music and right. whatever that's that's meant for the recording studio and then it gets baked into a film or a game or whatever a mm -hmm. piece of media as they call it. they they often nowadays call it media scoring as the all in term that encompasses TV, film, and games uh, as differentiated from concert music, which would be opera symphonies string quartets mm -hmm. whatever that's what the i'm saying like if you want to find that stuff yes go through to whatever theater is showing and for new stuff just you know there's a lot of options but much less though i mean like if you go to disney hall well disney hall is kind of an unusual example go to carnegie hall uh if if they do a hundred shows in a given season at carnegie hall the vast majority will be primarily consisting of music by composers that are dead. Uh, and and the number of pieces that are being heard for the first time ever, a world premiere, is going to be very low. And yeah. it's almost certainly not going to be the New York Philharmonic. It's going to be some other orchestra that mm -hmm. also plays at Carnegie Hall. That's because of the demand. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to go there to go... See, See Beethoven. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is where 
composers have to face the reality that the modern audience for contemporary classical music is not so interested in new pieces. Um, curiously, chamber music does seem to be a little bit of an exception because it's more intimate and it lets things get more experimental. That's why I think something like Dialogos is always interesting, it seems, seemingly, to people. I don't want to sound yeah. presumptuous, but like when you explain it, they go, oh, that sounds cool. And then they, when you, they realize Dialogos doesn't really, I don't think Dialogos works if it was done like in a stadium for 50,000 people. <laughs> I think it's the more intimate and the more people feel like they're kind of right there witnessing something right in front of their eyes. Yes. I think it, it's more interesting as an experience. And I enjoy feeling the presence of those people. Of like course. Feet away. It's so you intimidating. Know? It's, it's so. Yeah, it's, but it's nice. Yeah. You feed on their energy and their interest. And, <laughs> yeah. and um, so that's chamber music has that appeal. Like there's a there's a group uh, based out of New York called Bang on a Can that plays like modern music by modern composers. We're and, changing the topic so much. That's life. Are you want to be perfectionist about our staying on topic? I am. Can we just go back to the topic that we were supposed to talk about? All right, about? all right, all right. Well, anyway, lo long and short of it is that you better not cut this. Uh, you better not. You better not cut the the traffic traffic police uh, moment. I will be so upset if you cut it. Oh my God! Well, we will see. Oh no! This is staying in. I don't think you're going to listen. You never listen to the episodes when they're live. So whatever. I'll I do demand whatever I want. that everybody <laughs> listening tweet and acknowledge what I'm saying right now. And if I don't get tweets <laughs> excited about the tangent and then Angela's successful <laughs> redirection back on topic. You're so lazy. Just go listen to the episode. No, this is like my insurance. This is this is this is me. This is me <laughs> oh being uh, Joe Colombo going. Come up, up, come up on stage. Can you believe that? Oh he's... my God! Talking about talking about perfectionism, how perfect that is. is but doesn't it show? Right amount of yellow. <laughs> doesn't it show though that the like it? I, I mean, I mean the right shade of yellow. Actually, that's the quote. Isn't it interesting how it, Coppola? almost comes across like a like a whiny child sometimes where they're like we can't afford to go to sicily and he's like but i gotta yeah. the movie won't work without it like i know by the way guys we we're talking about uh this tv show on paramount plus uh called the offer which is like a no you explain it you, you explain it way better <laughs> than me <laughs> yeah. it, the long and short of it is it is a uh, dramatization of the behind the scenes of what it took to create the Godfather and so it tells the story through the eyes of the producer Al Ruddy uh, of the you know production process that it took to the well the pre-production process that it took to get the script done and then all the drama and chaos of the filming and um it's just great. Uh, it's just We've so... been like Googling every episode, like after every episode, we Google if actually those things happened. And also we, <laughs> we've been Googling like the casting, how similar the actors are to the real person, which is incredible. The makeup uh, involved there is just so crazy. Yeah, they've, they've done an incredible job. All the, all, cause these are all such famous people 
you know, like, yeah, what an intimidating thing to get hired yeah. to play a young Al Pacino or a young James oh Caan yeah, or even a... or even um, Coppola himself or Bob Evans. Yeah. These are legendary figures in the industry. Um, but yeah, and... I think this character, Coppola, is the perfect example because he's always looking for the perfect shot. He's obsessed with uh, the art of Caravaggio, so he wants to portray that on his work. And so even like he gets, you know, like there's drama with the lighting guy because it's not the right way to do it for him. Well, you know. what I think is that that actually that bit is a perfect demonstration of how perfectionism has to be tempered by some kind of intervening force because the lighting guy is being a perfectionist saying if everybody stands exactly on these spots while we're filming, I'll be able to paint the light on their face and we'll be able to create all exactly. that negative space and you know like this Caravaggio paintings. But Coppola is he simultaneously wants that but he's pushing yeah. back and saying but the actors have to be able to move, they have to be able to live in the moment. And he, exactly. the DP is saying I, I you can't have both. And they're yeah. fighting and it's like they're fighting about the laws of physics. Like it's just there's no arguing with it. They're one of them has to give. Yes. And I, it's like a perfect demonstration of this is one of the things I love about film. It's one of the things I love about working in film and in games as well. There's a lot of departments that have this perfectionist uh, desire and they have to learn to like play nice with others and, colla yes. and collaborate and cooperate because your perfectionism will ruin everybody else. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to learn to let go, to, to pick your battles and, and be understanding of the situation, of the budget. Um, you can just keep asking for a little bit more, a little bit more to go to Sicily. <laughs> um, perfectionism can take you to dark places. Uh, you're not going to be happy if you keep pushing and pushing and looking for it because at the end it doesn't exist. So how do you, how do you stop yourself then? Because you, like you said, you are a perfectionist in every way. And if you're like, you recently delivered a painting on commission to our dear friends, the Descartes. And you finessed that for weeks. I watched you where it w it looked done. It looked completely finished. And then you would go, I'm going to do a little thing here. And you would do, and you would put these very subtle little improvements. But but how do you decide at what point did you, because they were not begging and saying, we need it, we need it, we need it. Yeah. Like you could theoretically still yeah. be doing it if you really felt strongly. So how did you stop yourself from going insane? It's a gut feeling. You know, it's not, I don't think that painting is the perfect, the most perfect work I've done. I love it and I love how it turned out. Um, if you guys want to check out, uh, it's on my Instagram and my website. It's just basically a landscape, kind of like with the texture of a Van Gogh type of, you know, kind of like aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like saying that word that much. I don't want to use aesthetic? it. Yeah, everybody uses that word for everything, and I don't like using it. For some reason, I want to avoid using it, but it's... Oh, it's a perfect it's, word. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like that vibe, and it's the first time I make a commission that way, and I loved it. It was so fun, but I don't think it's perfect. It's just how to say it. It's good enough, and I know they're <laughs> going to be happy. And oh, they were, they were, I, I mean, 
I remember I was like telling a story unrelated or something and Brian just cuts me off and goes, wait, 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 how great is this painting? And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were, oh, they they were, were thrilled. Oh, they so sweet. Yeah. And here we can tell, we can tell you guys the story it's super, super quick. Austin, uh, he basically pitched the idea of when I delivered a painting, it's a big painting, uh, we went and delivered uh, the piece to their house, but I... Uh, he he asked me to make a very ugly, childish version of that landscape, and so I managed to grab another uh, as a canvas prank, like a, as a prank. Them. Yeah, exactly. So we have the the real painting, and then we have like a joke painting, the same size and everything. And I basically just use tape to put them together, um, and like very very carefully. Obviously, I know how those things are. <laughs> So I taped them together and you were very just adorable. Show the, show the joke painting to them, uh, and they loved it. I drew a little like sun, you know, with the, with lines. Like I never, I never do that. That's just like a kid's, you know, drawing of a sun, like very innocent mountain, and then a couple and their cat, like like a like. Shad no shadows um silhouettes silhouettes yes yeah um and well, it was very what... it was very it... childish and ugly and i made a painting in 15 minutes and i just went and delivered and they were like oh wow this is so nice and i couldn't i don't know it was i was sweating i was so nervous it was the funniest thing i've ever seen you were you were trying to you were trying to act uh, and you were like, so I tried to do something a little different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This I was is not trying my to, normal technique. I had like a and, whole speech, and I couldn't even, I couldn't even say anything yeah, because I was laughing, and I was so nervous and sweating, and I didn't because obviously I don't want them to think what the hell, Angela, this is crap. Uh, but also I was very curious of their. It was their, the funniest thing. Yeah, but they're so nice and they were very kind and I actually loved it. And they noticed the little cat and I exploded. Well, but also it's this is where you're uh, again, this might even be an expression of your perfectionism. You were incapable of making something that is actually objectively bad. Like when I pitched the because, idea, I was wait. picturing a stick figure. No, no, but I want like them a, to believe like that that canvas. was the painting, right? I wanted to... Be it was like, yes, ugly, but believably enough. See, this is where I pictured it as you make something that's so outrageously bad and then you stick to your guns. You go, I know this is going to come as a surprise, but I just really wanted to try something bold and express myself as an artist and then show it to them and just live in the silence as they go. Uh, uh, <laughs> no. Really? And just like let the moment oh, go no. and then finally be I like, nah, OK, no. Nah. Yeah, that was yeah. what I was fantasizing. No, but but it was ugly. It was awful. I did not. it in 15 minutes. It was a fast thing. Childish, yes. It's horrible. Not ugly. Yeah, horrible color. Uh, anyway, they were like, this is so nice. And I just couldn't handle it anymore. So I showed them the real painting. And did they you were share like, the, the false one online no, anywhere? I never share anything. Um, yeah, I I actually asked Austin to make a little video that I I have for myself, like just just to you know remember remember through the years and and just like enjoy <laughs> that moment because he was so funny. They're they're just the best. They're so nice. They are very very sweet. They are they are um, nice to a 
cartoonish level <laughs> to, to a mormon level uh yeah that was how troy <laughs> described him troy troy uh introduced us and he goes i need you to meet these two they're not just nice they're mormon nice oh my which God. as somebody who grew up with a lot of mormons around like i grew up in denver and and i had a lot of mormon friends and one of them some of my closest friends through my childhood were mormon and um and there, I totally, there's something uniquely, it's like they captured it so well on South Park. You know, there, there's this kind of like wholesome to an almost nauseating degree that is sort of a cultural norm uh, amongst Mormons. And I don't mean that negatively. Like they're just so nice and wholesome and yeah. sweet. And, and, um, and yeah, sure. uh, so that's how Brian and Amelia are there. So, and it's even in how they run their stream. They're like, of hashtag course. play the positive. And yeah, exactly. They're just so they're just so lovely. But yeah, it was, I knew they were going to love the fake one. I was like, they're going to, they're going to, I said, the one thing I'm afraid of is if they love it more than the real I painting. I know, you know, and they keep both. I don't know yeah. what you're going to do with that, but they keep both paintings. And we need to drop by their place without telling them they're coming. And that, cause maybe it turns out that they, they only put them. the real painting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if they know Only we're coming, we they visit. put the yeah. exactly. Oh my god! Oh, that is so funny. But so your answer to the question then was ultimately, you're like, you, I'm a perfectionist, you you know. but I just have a gut instinct that now it's plus, done, now it's good enough. Plus deadline, but yes. But you yes. didn't. Yeah, well, but there was no deadline. That's why I was kind of. I was already pressured because yeah, uh, we were gonna meet and then we keep delaying and and then I, at some point I was like, okay, this is it. I should deliver this. Uh, but yeah, I tweaked a few of those strokes and just left it there because at some point you're just going to start putting too much and that's never, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's never good. I would say that this has been a truly perfect conversation and it's Almost now perfect. good enough. I'll give you 60 seconds or less to tell me what's your pet peeve or delight of today? Oh, I didn't think of one. I had a, didn't I do it last time? I feel like I feel like no, it's, I your didn't. it's your. Oh wait, I don't know. Is it? Is it? I don't know. My my brain uh, is not. Um, um. Yeah. No. Uh, all right. Well, I could think of something quickly. I'm sure. Uh, my delight, as reflected by my Twitter, just moments before we went, is that I never cease delighting in. The cosmos and the uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the most sophisticated piece of imaging equipment ever made. It is essentially the replacement to the Hubble telescope. It is a truly mind blowing piece of astronomical equipment. Uh, after a gazillion years of planning and careful construction, it launched and they published the first image today. It's the oldest known photograph. Uh, Yep, it's it's literally a, a snapshot of the universe 13 and a half billion years ago, which is almost all oh, the way back yeah, to the was, beginning. I was looking at it. I was looking at it and I, and I got distracted by the coal. Yep, every everything in that image is a, is a galaxy, you know. It's Oh a, wow. The, the idea, you know, thinking back that galaxy there would be so many galaxies formed that early in the history of the universe is is truly amazing. And because that's the universe at give or take a billion years old, uh, I think the universe is uh, uh, actually wait. No, 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 no. Much less than that. Much less. Uh, 
I started to say the universe is 14 and a half. Yeah, okay, give or take 14 billion years. I, I had it as 13.8 in my head, which I think is accurate. So if 13.8 is correct and that photograph is 13.5, that means just 300 million years into the birth of the universe, you've already got just millions and millions of full-on galaxies, which obviously consist of hundreds of billions of stars. And to me, it is just anytime I need to feel my mood improved, anytime I feel basically anything negative that I could think of, few things can truly kind of snap me out of it than just beholding the universe through the lenses of our tools that we've made, whether it's space telescopes or things like the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is infrared photography, or or radio telescopes like the now retired and gone Arecibo that just listens to radio waves passing through the universe. All of that, there's just so much wonder to be found in all of that. It's like why I absolutely love the Carl Sagan quote where he says, to, to, to create an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. And the idea that everything is so interconnected that there is no such thing as making something from nothing unless you're talking about going all the way back to the Big Bang. And uh, I, I just absolutely love that. So it, I know it's not related to art or perfectionism or anything at all, but like sometimes I have pet peeves that just irritate me and they're small and <laughs> inconsequential. And then there's delights that are just sometimes it's small. Yeah. Like it's like, oh, I love butterflies. And then other times delights are I love I love what's the what science but particularly the fields of astronomy cosmology astrophysics what they tell us about the universe our role in the universe our connectivity our connectedness to the universe that is just never that's a, that is an unfailing delight for me wow for me is a scary thing <laughs> scary yeah it's very scary i see that image and i i don't know my mind just think about all of the different civilizations that are out there that's exciting that's not scary fucking right? scary yeah can you imagine like all the I alternate all versions the of austin <laughs> well that i don't presume there to be any but i'm teasing but you never know but uh yeah i mean it would seem that given that the human body is primarily consistent of of you know hydrogen oxygen nitrogen the most generic and basic ingredients in the universe that are abundantly everywhere. Uh, the, 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 are, are not, are not specialness in our construction. It would seem like life must surely be everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, for sure. I, 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 I really, really hope that in my lifetime, I witnessed the discovery of a non, um, Earth-based, like I know Carolyn Porco's whole thing is if we found um, a biogenesis event like on the moon of Enceladus, for example, of around Saturn or one of the other Titan, any of these other moons that maybe have the right conditions for forming life. If we were to find that, um, that would mean that life is probably everywhere. Uh, yeah. Because if it can form twice in a single solar system around a single star. Mm hmm that is suggestive of like life is probably every star has life like or you know a lot of them would and yeah. just what a thought how how exciting yeah so there you go so on that very light note <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we thank you for checking out another Brushes and Keys. And we'll see you at the next one. Yes, thank you so much, guys. You know how to find us. You know how to talk to us. You know that we're on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah. Beautiful. Bye. <laughs> Perfect. Good enough. Thank you.